Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast on this particularly sunny afternoon recording about about a topic that I really love the most. It's about corporate finance. I mean, I must love it because I got a lot of training in commercial schools at universities. And um, also, I was also working in listed companies. And basically, this is what I do for 30 years now. And um, the downside of uh, expertise and experience is that it really makes it, um, let's say, it creates blind spots in their own life when it comes to an understanding of the reality of uh, financial literacy and how much other people know about financing, especially when it comes to companies. When I started with uh, working with life science companies in 2006, I also had the pleasure to directly jump on board of a company that was funded by the world's best venture capital companies. And only afterwards, I started uh, connecting with scientists and got a little bit of insight in their reality. And um, the downside is, or the upside is that they have really great ideas and they are creating really great science. But the downside is the minute when they want to move their science forward to customers or life science to patients, they are basically left alone. So nobody explains to them how to finance a company, how to create companies, how to make a multi-billion dollar story out of it. And that's why I'm very happy that Astrid organized this episode today and brings on board one of her friends that is uh, really very proficient and has profound expertise, probably a lot better than I have, um, to this webinar recording. Astrid, thank you very much and over to you. Yes, thank you very much, Christian. It's exciting to uh, have here yet another episode of the LSG2G podcast and to welcome Dushita uh, Lukacs today uh, with us, who is uh, an expert in mergers and acquisitions. I need to say I have always been um, sort of on the other side, man, sort of coaching startups and to see them really grow into this kind of um phase where it would then become a potential acquisition target. I think some of the uh, discussion that we always had was like, okay, when is the right time to really plan something like this? Um, how early do you get, engage with a potential acquirer? And what are sort of the kind of deal terms that one should uh, think about? So I'm really great. It's really great to have Dushita here with us today, who is a founding partner, managing director of DL Capital Partners. Um, that provides strategic management consulting and transaction advisory. Uh, Dushita also holds an executive MBA from the Carlson Business School in Minnesota, US, and from the Wirtschaftsuniversität Wien, so in Vienna and Austria, where her specialization was also around fintech law and regulations. And it's really great to have you here on the show today with us, Dushita. Thank you, Astrid. Thank you, Christian. This is really amazing. Um, I feel like I have um, really big shoes to fill, fill in today, so I'm kind of blushing. I don't know if you can see that. Thank you so much. Yes, I have started Korea, uh, believe it or not, like three decades ago. Uh, it has been like a long time. I, I started in structured finance and then grew into, into M&A, which was really good because in, it um, uh, gave me opportunity to have a glimpse into different type of structures that are on the table and that corporate finance is much more than we can imagine at the, at, at, 
like the first side because when we say like what it is like just buying and selling companies and and um, uh, that's it but technically it is not and um, I have learned uh, during my careers working on the different structures you know how deal can go into a direction that you didn't even imagine uh, which can actually end up even better uh, because when people are at the negotiation tables and they have creative approaches you can witness like giving birth to something really special and new. And this is why I call this when I talked with Christian, that uh, the Christian that we said, like, this is a magic of corporate finance because in the end it can really create something uh, super special that we all will be enjoying on a daily basis, not knowing how much creativity is behind it. Um, I work with the um, uh, different type of the companies, as, as you know, Astrid, particularly uh, technology driven, because five years ago I uh, stepped out of the big corporate world uh, where I was very much focused on buying and selling banks and um, uh, decided to focus on emerging technologies. I recognize the trend and I'm really happy I've done that. Uh, because this is really exciting and dynamic space and emerging technologies, um, uh, not only that they are changing the world of finance and, and, and um, other segments, but I'm witnessing it now also changing the world of life science industry. And, and this is so exciting. Uh, so I will be saying a couple of things today, you know, about the latest trends, which uh, because I think that uh, 2020 changed the life of everyone. But to go back to basically why are we talking today about corporate finance, I really feel that there is not enough, how to say, support out there for the entrepreneurs that are coming from different industries and different avenues of life so that they can understand um, the whole spectrum of services um, and um, uh, what they can do, how to grow their company. Uh, it is not just like one way street. So you can of course uh, grow it organically. Uh, you can put a lot of effort in developing your products and services and then of course finding the sales channels. And that is always uh, important segment of one business because organic growth gives you definition, identity. It is really important uh, to do that. But at some moment you really, when you learn walking you want to start running and and this is what corporate finance uh, steps into the picture and, and non-organic growth happens and I was thinking what to mention today you know um, what are the ways how companies can grow and um, it is not only um, of course, you can also develop big alliances and partnerships. This is something what I'm uh, suggesting to everyone to explore to the ultimate extent, because I think that teaming up, building up ecosystems, and also through the partnerships and alliances, you can do a lot. Uh, but then you can start buying or selling. I mean, that's, and you're not only buying and selling the whole companies, you can buy and sell segments of the business. You can buy brands, you can buy business units, you can buy various assets from um, uh, intellectual property, real estate, I mean, uh, portfolios, even inventories of lots of different things. You can buy the whole portfolios, you can buy the customer base, you can buy data, you can buy, um, as I said, parts of the companies, but you can buy also whole companies and you can also sell the same things. Uh, so going back to this, um, why would you be doing that? <laughs> and this was interesting question for me when I was looking at, for example, what are the types 
um, uh, of most common transactions out there. And this is where the name comes from, mergers and acquisitions. And mergers are like, there are major four types of mergers. And the difference between merger and acquisition, the main one is that within the merger, you would have more or less uh, equal partners finding the way to cooperate. While in, in acquisition, you will have one company uh, with a better financial standing find the other company. Sometimes the other company can be even the bigger one, but having a troubled or distressed situation, still it's bought fully by another entity and absorbed into that entity. This is the major difference when we are talking about mergers and acquisition. So going back to these I would say um, uh, more partnership formats, you would be looking into standard, uh, let's say horizontal merger. This is a, a basically immediate competitors that they decide to merge same products, even same regions, same services. Uh, and basically they are uh, looking into, into consolidation of the market, becoming the bigger player. There is one tip. This kind of merger can be subject to anti-monopoly issues, and we've seen that a lot in tech world. So be cautious of that. <laughs> Think about that before you start. Um, the second one I, I want to mention is uh, vertical merger. Vertical merger is basically across different production lines. I would say it can um, um, it can consolidate certain parts of your business. So you would be buying someone who maybe will improve your supply chain or your distribution channels, um, um, selling more, and, and that would be uh, a vertical merger. Then again, you have so-called concentric merger. Uh, this is one of my favorite measures because sometimes you have companies, particularly software companies, are lending really amazing clients and they want to increase, um, uh, to, to, to start, um, having a better product offering for the client base because they, they realized that there is a space they can serve better. So they go and buy companies that have complementary product base so that they can increase the cross-selling opportunities and then would increase their um, uh, turnover tremendously. And of course, the, uh, uh, the last one, which is quite often, this is so-called conglomerate mergers. Uh, they're, they're kind of pure or the mixed mergers. This is when totally unknown, unrelated companies uh, decide uh, to find the, the, the reason to, to merge together. Um, this can be a little bit challenging because I'm always looking at the tips. As I said, in one, it was anti-monopoly. In concentric merger, you, you, you should check your saturation risk that you do not merge and then discover that you really cannot cross-sell as much as you wanted with your clients. But with the conglomerate mergers, you should be cautious of potential change of, of uh, the business model risk where your people can feel that they don't fit anymore within the newly uh, formed company. Um, on the acquisition side, it's pretty simple. You have a traditional merger, traditional acquisition, sorry, which is like basically buying assets and liabilities of certain companies. Uh, there is a very big tip for, for also mergers, but particular acquisition. This is so-called integration risk. You really should start thinking about how to integrate companies early. And as, uh, now actually super popular reverse merger. Uh, why I'm saying it's super popular, this is when a basically private company acquires um, a public company in order to be publicly listed. 
that's because all the specs, spec IPO that everyone is talking about, they are in essence uh, reverse merger. And this is why I said like um, it's super popular at the moment. We we can talk about it later if you think that it's interesting. Uh, but I just wanted to to stress, you know, uh, what are the types and the ways how you can grow your company, and why would you be doing that? Going back to my first question, it was like, first of all, you can look at your cost side. Uh, so you can reduce your cost, your operational uh, uh, cost. You can also um, reduce, improve your existing skill set and technologies. Uh, this, this type of mergers uh, and acquisitions would be, called, would be called capacity building. Uh, this was a huge trend in 2020 where people were strengthening their companies and, and looking uh, down um, how they can uh, have a better structure so that they can boost their production production capacities and their sales capacities, uh, exploring new markets, uh, or any additional growth prospects. All these are very valid reasons to consider um, going um, uh, away from standard organic growth, which sometimes can be rather rather slow. Thank you very much for this uh, profound opening statement. There was a lot of information um, already in the first uh, 10 minutes. Um, when I look at mergers, I mean, I'm coming from the pharma industry and mergers and acquisitions is basically, um, it's, it's an ongoing game and it's a never ending game. So people are buying and selling. Um, yes. when I, when I, when I, let's try to, to put it a little bit in the perspective of Austria. We have a lot of life science companies that are looking for being bought and acquired by the pharma industry. And the pharma industry is doing that uh, to strengthen their product portfolio. So they need new products uh, in the line. And these life science companies are also merging. Uh, basically, they are, they are in licensing uh, technology from, from universities. Absolutely. Um, when I look now uh, to these uh, entities that we have here in Austria, Central Europe, um, and they are reaching out to the pharma industry to become a target. What should they be aware of uh, when it comes to selling their assets and company to the pharma industry? Is it really that easy that you just sell the assets uh, are in happy land afterwards and everything is perfect and fine? <laughs> Um, actually, that's maybe a really good moment to discuss a little bit how the process itself looks like. Mm -hmm. So maybe I will be able to answer this question in question in a more structured way. Uh, so the first thing you really should have very clear idea. This is a strategic thing. Why you want to do merger an acquisition of either one segment? Why do you want to sell your business? Why do you want to merge with your business? Or why do you want to acquire another business? That means that you really, really need to know what you're looking for and then you would do something let's, what we call let's yeah. Because I, the answer I get usually is when I talk to companies is, yeah, we want to make money. Of course, we want to make money. That's clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, I'll be very honest. This is the moment when we start talking very seriously. When when we step in and we, uh, we go and say, okay, guys, now is the time to talk about strategy. We all want to make more money. We all want to grow. So let's discuss, you know, about the synergies of the new, of, 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 of potential um, either 
uh, with your buyer or the company you want to acquire. And this is where this clear idea comes from. And I'm going back to this. What are you lacking as a science, life science company? Do you need R&D strengthening? Because this is a huge trend. Or you maybe need a, a, a better uh, production capacities because pandemic suddenly made it that everyone wants to buy uh, your Sorry, products. Sorry to interrupt you. Let's highlight that uh, also for companies that are looking to be acquired, uh, they should ask themselves the questions, what do you need? What do you expect besides the money? Did I understand you right? Oh, that is even that is even even uh, a deeper question because you need to integrate in the new system. You mm. need to deliver. And, and uh, maybe it's too early to mention that, but within your contract, there will be certain uh, instruments how they will be looking at you if you do not deliver what you promised. Uh, so uh, lots of mergers and acquisitions during due diligence, I mean, and we will come to that, uh, they would have to define very detailed plan and understanding where the synergies are. Uh, these synergies are core of your valuation. Uh, you cannot value yourself only, oh, uh, and, and I'm hearing that very often, but he got 100 times annual of, of revenues or turnover or EBITDA. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really that simple because there is so much more behind that. And this is why I'm, I'm, I'm always mentioning it actually starts exactly in this moment when you are thinking about it because defining your own strategic role within the system or separately, it's, it's the key moment when you really start understanding why you're doing it. And then after we decide why we are doing it, is it like, as I said, reducing the costs, if you're maybe acquiring company that can help you uh, do more work uh, with less people or uh, they have better technology or you're basically expanding your product base or you're expanding your market. There is so much potential out there. I mean, uh, that you can, and then you can, you have to see how your system fits into that. Because for example, I can decide to go out there and buy we are technology company, but I really don't have anything in my company that fits with we are technology. I mean, I, I really like we are. I, I would I maybe want to do it myself, you know, at home, and maybe it would be great to do VR MA, but that really doesn't make much sense. And and that's the moment where basically, as I said, when you have a very clear idea and you go out there and buy someone um, or selling yourself, before you start anything, I suggest you do something what we call mapping the market. I see Christian want to ask questions, so. Just, just go ahead and interrupt you anyway. Yes, so uh, I, <laughs> please. Uh, I think this is a very, a very important part that you're mentioning. Do your homework first. So really, it doesn't matter yes. if you're on the buy or on the sell side of the table. Doesn't matter. Always, always, always really sit down and, and define your strategy. I mean, when it, I'm coming from life science, so I bring up very often examples from life science. Absolutely. Um, when someone wants to be acquired or wants to sell an asset, uh, of course, they want money. This is quite clear. But it's not really a good selling proposition to put it just that way when uh, the potential buyer asks you, why do you want to be acquired for the money? Uh, it doesn't move. It doesn't move people. The better answer, and uh, this thought came after you were talking, is uh, we want to bring our assets to the patient. And we can't do it ourselves because we like the capacity of uh, phase three trials and bringing it uh, and selling and marketing to products. I think this is very important what you're mentioning. Um, I totally agree. That's amazing point. 
Yeah, no, I think also the, the point that you raised sort of like how actually your strategy also the, the whole thinking around the synergies really plays in a, an important part in the valuation because as one is often aware, you can easily sell your you know, company for a few hundred thousand for maybe even two to five million. But if you really want to generate best value out of it and also sort of not just sort of get this, the company off your shoulders and be done with it, but really think about how can you, how this can actually lead to another phase of the company. That's really sort of totally into this kind of um, strategy there. But where do you feel like, so, so how do you actually, how should companies plan for that? So what, what is sort of within that, the process? Yeah. That was actually what I started, you know, with this. Um, uh, so uh, the, because this also, what I'm saying now, gives you another perspective in how due diligence looks like. So it's not only the list of documents and sale contracts and, um, uh, I don't know, your IP list. It is actually much more. And, and um, as I said, the first after you have the clear idea, you should do something what we call mapping the market. I mean, my team and me, we are doing that a lot for, for the companies. Uh, what does it mean? That means that, first of all, we will be setting the criteria uh, for m and transaction. Uh, meaning what kind of um, a target you're buying or what kind of buyer you're looking for. It has really to be very detailed. Uh, it should define uh, also um, all the key reasons for the transaction. So it will be like profit margins, geolocation. So if you want to have money, you want to team up with someone who is making more than you, having uh, what kind of customer base they have, uh, is there potential for capacity building on the boat company? So you really set up this uh, this um, so-called acquisition criteria, but I do that also for the mergers because it's even more complex because you should discuss about integration capacity. And that is for me the moment when it starts, uh, because if you start thinking about integration after transaction, that really can be a big problem. Um, then, of course, you identify the list of potential targets. The, usually, I'm always saying, look into your uh, competitors, friends, um, uh, partners, uh, people with whom you are forging alliances with, um, or even um, customers, because sometimes it makes sense. So the closer you are to each other, the better um, target list will be because you will already know of each other's existence and strengths and weaknesses and it will be faster and easier integration and better transaction. There will be more cultural, better cultural fit. So then of course you have to start planning, meaning you, you make a teaser, uh, you reach out to, to, to these targets that you're mentioning, you have one or two or three calls, one, you go... One. One, 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 one stop, one stop again. I think this is because um, I make it intentionally to again highlight what you are saying, uh, because I really see a lack of this understanding when I talk with potential clients that there is a step in the phase before even putting your company up for sale or before going to sell something yes. or, or, or buy or acquire something. It's called... Uh, defining the strategy and mapping the market. And uh, in my opinion, this should not be a five minute event so that you go on Google and, oh, no. uh, and search it. Um, what is your opinion? Is it, uh, should it be a process in the company or should it be one workshop? Uh, does it last one week, one month, uh, one year? Just to give people the right perspective. Uh, it it really, it really it depends is. on the size of the company. It really depends on the size of the company. I mean, if we are talking about 
um, a global uh, company, it would be very comprehensive analysis, detailed deliverables. There would be a lot of uh, uh, discussions with the various departments and, and to understand uh, potentially um, how to add value to the existing business. If it is really small company um, uh, at earlier stages of development, it can be much shorter. It can be literally um, uh, detailed discussion with the decision makers and major uh, or key employees within the company. And then basically, I always like to deliver uh, a physical deliverable because it also stays with the company, even if they decide that it's not a good moment to go to the market, because that also can come out of this exercise. And this is why I'm, I'm uh, stressing it so often. Let's do this. I mean, I, sometimes people don't like doing that. They're saying it's overthinking, but Business is a serious thing. Your, your business does deserve all the attention you can give it to your business because it's a very serious thing. Your business is serious. So we have to be serious about uh, changing the DNA of the business and selling you part of your business or buying uh, another business is changing DNA of your business. Great points. I completely agree with that. So uh, the fault process before should be done really properly, ideally. Um, the companies on the market and mapping the market all the time besides their core business. It's, 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 I mean, yeah. life science or every B2B business um, that needs to do a transaction, we are not buying or selling cars. So it's not a, a, a perfectly defined product with uh, millions of products on the market already that are completely okay. the same. It's a speci speciality. And it's very good to hear that you also see it the same way. It's very uh, refreshing. <laughs> No, that, that is actually, I'm always trying to make this part of the process very valuable for the company because it can help them redefine their business model. Uh, it can help them say, oh, no, we don't want to go and, and do this exercise now because it, it does not pay off to us the, the amount of effort we have to invest. But we are going to strengthen this and this segments of our businesses in another way. And then when you still decide to go out there, you reach out to potential targets. And um, uh, then you set up, of course, the calls, uh, exchange the financial information, annual reports, and all these things. And then your team do the valuation analysis. And this is not end of the road valuation. This is just the first financial valuation. The CF model, you would check also this uh, EBITDA multiples. You would see the market uh, um, uh, pricing at the moment. You would compare all this. And this is really starting point valuation. This You know that it's not a final one, but you need to have to feel the waters, you know, like to, to understand what you're getting into. And that's the purpose of this type of valuation analysis, because you still don't have enough information about the company to understand all the aspects of the valuation. And then you would go down there uh, and start potential negotiations because you know the brackets within financially, how potentially that can look like. And in these processes, usually you would uh, get out of the negotiations with either walking away from the transaction because you see there is no willingness to proceed with it, or you would sign something which we call letter of intent. Uh, and uh, at the same time, there would be um, the first structure of the term sheet, which I think that Astrid is very familiar with from her previous work. Uh, but uh, this is, of course, um, uh, can be binding and non-binding, depending on the size of the company, of the process, how it is run, is, is it private or public? Um, because it's, it's already the moment when you know a lot. Um, or maybe I just 
forgot to mention that um, the NDAs are usually in these processes signed at the very beginning. So you should know that no one even accept the first um, discussion call or uh, Zoom call without NDA in place. So this is something maybe it's for me kind of normal. This comes at the beginning, so I just didn't mention it. So now when we have uh, uh, some kind of structure on the table with a term sheet, uh, we have some kind of a letter of intent. So you are interested actually in the company and might pay in the range from two, then basically you open due diligence. This is the moment where actually you really go down the road. Uh, and, and during the, the usually in parallel uh, with the due diligence while you're doing it, you start uh, marking your uh, definitive purchase agreement or sales purchase agreement, whatever is on the table. So because these legal markups and very detailed protection of, of, of interest of all parties and uh, it can be very lengthy process. And I would say that due diligence is extremely important. No, I think it's really great. I mean, I was just wondering, you know, this process, because um, again, if we think about it as a very strategic process and you have to really carefully consider why you're doing it, how often do you see that there is a stronger push from actually investors to say like, okay, we need now to get into this process because we need our exit, we need to get our money back, rather than that it really makes strategic sense for the company to say like, okay, no, we want to be acquired and sort of we've evaluated it, um, Going uh, doing an IPO doesn't really make sense. It happens. Yeah. It happens a lot, uh, particularly uh, with certain types of companies and um, uh, also that gives the buyer upper hand because the buyer can, re can recognize that type of process. Um, maybe later when I will be going after, uh, when we walk away from uh, the, uh, the structure, I also looked into latest trends and 2021 will be marked with this type of the deals. Because one of the reasons why we have the increase in M&A activity is because the existing investors are shying away from a long positions and they are pushing some of the successful portfolio companies in high valuation space uh, to go into earlier, um, let's say sales processes than they originally thought. Uh, on the other side, it, uh, the other stakeholders will do everything in their power to protect the value of the company because there is, and they will force investor who is pushing for sale uh, to define the moment which is not acceptable because that's extremely important. That's responsible management. Uh, you as, as manager of certain company and the other shareholders, you do have responsibility to manage company at, at, at its best way and one of the best ways is sometimes to have a nervous investor uh, bring it to the table and discuss you know how and and um, how to put him in the same line with the other stakeholders I, I agree to what you say I mean Black Swan events can happen like we saw last year multiple times <laughs> it was an exceptional year um, but in 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 normal years hopefully they come back again uh, I think really it all boils down to to your strategy work at the beginning very well. Uh, I would also 
put finding investors into the M&A bracket. And also there is very important to do your due diligence on the investors when you get them on board and not just take the money. And I think this, what, what you said initially, this strategy phase, strategizing, really sitting down, thinking about what's the DNA of the company. This is something uh, that is very important in my eyes. No, absolutely. And I want to say that um, uh, a little bit more mature company that are not like super early stage startups, uh, in, in, in one moment, uh, you would have drag along, tag along clothes. It wouldn't be that easy to, to like push for the fire exit because everyone, I mean, the serious, imagine that, you know, the serious fund bringing in. 100 million, they would definitely want to make sure that they have a saying how the company is sold. So I would, uh, uh, I think it's a really valid point, Astrid, that you have made. It's not such a simple and straightforward uh, transaction. I tried to present simplified situation in our call because I actually want to motivate entrepreneurs uh, to start thinking of growing past and using the situation, particularly life science, uh, and healthcare, uh, pharma, it, they're all super hot. And I'm sure that many of your um, uh, like members are thinking about it. And I just wanted to help them understand what does it take. And having the good team on your side when you are you doing the process, which means that you have internal capacity to do the process, but you have a really strong legal representation, you have a commercial uh, advisor, uh, so that you you feel quite comfortable that you have a team that will be looking after your interests is also quite important. Um, I, I, I'm just um, uh, skipping usually this because it sounds like PR, but I mean, honestly, I've seen lawyers at work. <laughs> I have been giving commercial segments and I would always pay for a good lawyer, <laughs> always. I, I completely agree to that, um, what, what, what you're saying. And I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> just, <laughs> just for the clarification. No, putting putting the right team together is definitely key yes. key to success. I mean, even when I think back to my M&A days in big corporation corporations, usually people are very much into the daily business, even when they have an M&A department. Let's just face it, you're part of yes. the company. And having a guide that helps uh, guiding through the transactions from the strategic phase up to moving forward, um, to each single step of the transaction process is extremely helpful. So putting the team together, getting the right lawyers on board. And I think you are probably one of them that uh, our audience can can uh, can can run to when uh, they, they need support. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Yes, yes, we do that. Uh, we have um, uh, the team that we can also assemble. We can provide the whole uh, um, um, also, we can all open the doors for uh, so that you can choose uh, the members of the team that we trust uh, and that we work with. Um, we ourselves, particularly corporate finance people or M&A advisors, we would be bringing uh, maybe the insights, um, how to have uh, your strategy cleared at the beginning. We would also help you map the market. We would help you make the, uh, the target list. It would help you, of course, reach out to them, structure the process, run the process. Um, we, 
we would bring on board the project manager who would be balancing all the different people. There is something which we call agile MA, uh, which is now very simplified um, a structure that delivers faster results. And this is um, uh, there's a lot of um, added value in looking at it that way. Um, we can also help you, of course, um, uh, with evaluation, depending on the size of the company. We can bring someone to do the fairness opinion uh, if it is um, necessary. I've done the big deals, and that's always necessary to have third-party evaluation because the uh, M&A processes usually end up in some kind of, of uh, uh, lawsuits because of the information clause or something like that. So this is something we would be thinking about from the day one and helping you go through this uh, and um, uh, the there is the whole segment of the market supporting the financing of acquisitions this is something also we can bring you some contacts into that direction um, I, I love that for the end because as I said in the process we had strategic we have mapping the market we reached out to the market uh, negotiations were done uh, valuation initially, and then we have lateral of intent, uh, due diligence started, uh, the legal documentation is done at the same moment, and now we kept to the, uh, the financing structure. Uh, and it is not only cash payments. <laughs> this is something what I also wanted to say, um, because there are so many other forms of payment. You can, you can uh, apart from uh, cash payment, like a simple, I'm just buying company, absorbing it, paying cash for it, et cetera. You can also, particularly in mergers, you can decide to go for the equity swap uh, because you're technically buying someone of your side. You're merging, you're getting more strength and you do want uh, everyone to feel, how to say, like at home with the company. So sometimes during the equity swap, uh, making a new company, but basically equities are swapped into new company. There are many other structures. Um, uh, payment in kind, it's quite common, but also there is something what I wanted to mention. It's usually uh, part of the contract, the so-called earnout component. Earnout component is important for the companies because you want to make sure that the team that built up the company that is crucial for the company does not walk away on day one. Um, I, I would say that people who are looking into M&A transactions, the risk manager, they would be insisting on very long earnout components. Um, Sometimes with, with, with super small companies, you're talking about the founders and maybe head of sales and head of product. Uh, but for the bigger companies, uh, you would be looking at the performance of the company and you will be paying shareholders uh, based on, on, on the cheap performance. This is going back to this, uh, the drag along, tag along, the, 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 the plan that you had from the beginning, that you cannot just pull it out of the air, that you have to understand why you're getting into it. And um, because there is usually some kind of uh, clawback situation where you're going to be held accountable for delivering what was promised uh, at the beginning of the process or during the process. So this is why I'm saying always uh, to, to stay um, within the space that you really understand. Uh, because it, it, um, uh, I've seen a lot of, uh, particularly early stage um, uh, tech companies, I think Astrid as well, with the business plans, with a very imaginative approach. And uh, uh, that is not something I would advise uh, in, um, particularly in M&A process. 
I think you're absolutely right. Usually the people on the other side of the table understands the business and the market very well. So coming up with uh, creative modeling, I, I always, uh, this one sentence resonates still in my mind when people explain to me, you can put all kinds of figures into an Excel sheet because uh, at the end of the day, it's just a calculation. It's not really the real truth. What we think should should talk about is the kinds of transactions that, that happen because uh, also when we know where we want to go, there are different types of uh, reasons why a bigger company or an investor acquires something. For example, uh, Warren Buffett, um, with Berkshire Hathaway has a very unique investment style. So he buys something to just keep it. He provides money and usually expects the management to stay on board. Uh, what other types of transactions do you see, uh, especially in those days or in these days that we have currently um, that are going through now? Um, maybe just to mention that um, uh, you can have, there are two major types of transactions um, in, in M&A space. And this is, I would say, with the financial and strategic investor. That makes enormous difference how they approach the process. And that would also um, make a difference how uh, the company afterwards function. That would make difference to the integration process, et cetera. So let me say uh, on uh, strategic, I believe it's quite clear. It will be company, um, and, and I'm going back to this, either someone you worked with, uh, someone from your space, someone complementary to yourself, or, or adding value on, on a vertical level. Um, and going back to the financial investors, um, we have the whole spectrum of investors here. You can have, um, uh, but mostly uh, that will be either private source of funding or public source of funding. Uh, but people maybe don't know that, uh, that a lot of private source of funding is um, uh, financed with a leverage. So this is so-called leverage uh, buyout. And, and this source of funding can be quite expensive. Uh, so they also would be more nervous uh, investor uh, than the other type of investor. So uh, it's, but they do a very open process. You would know that this is not um, how to say some kind of hidden or, or a secret situation. So I would say that um, Warren Buffett is definitely a private equity investor. Uh, so he's a very specific style. There are a couple of um, uh, very famous strategists. He's one of them. Uh, there's so-called value investing. There, I mean, it, we're really talking about the whole spectrum of, of investment types, but in essence, uh, it all comes to these two major parts. It, is it either financial or is it strategic? Uh, the financial investor also can be very, um, uh, for example, we've seen that now with uh, with SPACs, which are very, very popular. Uh, SPAC IPO means special purpose acquisition company uh, that is actually uh, listed on exchange, 95% on NASDAQ. And then this um, uh, shell company, which is usually M uh, um, blind shell company, uh, is uh, going out, taking money from the investors and then going out there and buying or merging in reverse merger form with some target company, which then becomes listed on NASDAQ. So this is um, a little bit structured situation. Why I'm mentioning this as, as a, uh, because it's extremely popular, but this is usually driven by private equity, uh, uh, by uh, private equity, uh, uh, let's say money. And uh, you would have a sponsor 
who is um, promoting this uh, particular special purpose acquisition company. And this sponsor very often comes from private equity space, very mature and brings a lot of added value. Uh, it, it's not always the case, but the, very often it is. And um, I'm just mentioning this. I mean, I will be talking about it later within the trends of 2021. Uh, but when you ask me about it, in the end, it all comes to these two types of transactions, financial or strategic. If it is financial, there is a need to get out in a shorter time. If it is strategic, you might actually grow into bigger a company and then start acquiring other companies or acquiring for the bigger company. There's a lots of structures you can make, but you become a part of the bigger uh, group. Does that answer your question, Christian? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned one uh, part, the trends of 2021. I would be very curious, I'm curious, so I would be very interested uh, to hear your professional opinion. Where is the world heading to when it comes to transactions? Well, well, I mean, currently we still have the SARS-CoV-2 event going on and um, I see a lot of different regulations all over the world. Um, Boris Johnson, for example, starts to call off the pandemic. So he, he mentioned in the news that uh, from April 15 onwards, his country will open up. I hear the same from American friends. Europe looks a little bit different and China is a game of its own. Um, how did that influence uh, mergers and acquisitions in the recent months? And what do you think will we see in the coming 12 to 24 months on the market? Okay, my personal opinion <laughs> doesn't matter how bad situation looks like from our perspective. It does not really mean that all segments of markets are equally hit. Uh, there will be winners from pandemics. There will be actually parts of industries or the whole industries that will be profiting considerably from uh, the change that pandemic brought to the world. Um, and I would think that pharma, life science, and healthcare is one of these industries that we will be seeing uh, additionally growing. For me, it was quite interesting because um, I mentioned to you already, I have one amazing client in, in, in life science space, uh, and I'm super proud. I work with such amazing team. Uh, they're in UK. Uh, the human microbiome solution uh, is called In Vivo Healthcare. And uh, because of them, I started looking how healthcare market is moving. Uh, and then I realized that for the last five years, uh, the uh, PLS, which is like pharma and life science and uh, uh, healthcare services are basically the refuge of, of, of many investors. I mean, it is for the last five years, it's valuations are just growing and growing. They're not enough of the targets. Uh, so I would say that, first of all, according to all the uh, reports I have read, that there is expectation that M&A trends will lead economic recovery. I'm quoting PwC on this, but I agree with that. Uh, I think that there will be a need uh, that people had a lot of time during 2020 to reconsider their uh, business models. So we will be seeing companies who are market leaders who will want to strengthen their position further and to use 
of speeding up of their market segment. And then you will see uh, additional M&A activity and, um, uh, from distressed pool or uh, private investors' exits, as Astrid already uh, mentioned. Uh, also companies who are uh, reassessing their um, uh, strategies and business model and maybe selling non-core assets. Uh, uh, this is something which will be happening a lot and it will be bringing a lot of uh, housing activity to the econo economy, the global economy. Uh, I would say that um, maybe just to mention that uh, in 2020, there were uh, there was so-called years of mega deals. Uh, I would uh, mega deal is a deal which is about five billion dollars. Uh, I would say that only in uh, uh, I think in the U.S. there were uh, eleven tech deals, mega deals, seven in pharma. Um, I uh, I think that um, there there was quite interesting. Um, it was very active uh, uh, 2020, particularly in, in life science. So for example, I think that you're seeing uh, um, uh, companies like Nestle buying uh, biotech companies like uh, A-Immune. Um, uh, so we're seeing a lots of things happening during the 2020. And this is why I'm extremely positive how the trends will continue in 2021. Because if you look at the data of 2020, you would see second quarter, deals went down, the whole economic activity in the Western hemisphere went down. There was a shock in the market, the pandemic started, people started working from home. And by the way, if it happened five years ago, we, weren't, we wouldn't be able to work from home. I mean, I, I worked in a bank like 10 years ago, it was impossible to send people uh, to work remotely, you know, and now all my friends in banks, they work remotely. This, is, this, this, leads, this leads to a very philosophical question. Uh, didn't we see a pandemic event in the past because the world was not prepared for it? Uh, so need the technology advance that the politicians are confident enough to send us into into the home we, offices. We, yeah, we we did have pandemic after uh, first world war. I mean, Spanish flu, mm -hmm. it killed 50 million people. It, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying that it was despite of all the negativity that people and I can understand that because people don't like to be in a lockdown. They don't like the change which is happening. I don't like it, I have to say. I don't like that I had to stop traveling. I don't like that I haven't seen open restaurants since November uh, or October. Uh, I mean, I, but still, I think that uh, economic disruption is uh, more manageable than systematic disruption that happened up to 2008 financial crisis. Uh, because I think that one was much deeper, also if you look at the numbers. Uh, so going back to that, I'm pretty positive uh, that once we have this pandemic thing behind us, that 80% of population is vaccinated and that we can move on, that we will be seeing a lot of activities. And in the meantime, uh, virtual deal flow became reality and it's here to stay. This was something that um, was very surprising to me. I mean, there is one component that I value very much when it comes to, to structuring deals is meeting people in person. So one of the fears I had last year was that uh, it will not be possible to close any deal because we cannot meet in person. I mean, it's quite obvious, no traveling. And surprisingly to me, um, many investors and uh, also companies didn't share my opinion. So how, what, what did you see? What dynamics are when it comes to, to hard figures in deal closing when you look at the second half of 2020? Uh, do you see 
uh, a dip in the market or did the market recover very quickly? Um, dip in the market was, uh, as I mentioned, a second quarter uh, in 2020, but uh, third and the fourth quarter picked up significantly. And not only in the mega deals, uh, also in the other deals. Uh, probably if situation was normal, we would be seeing more deals. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, I think that ups and downs in a deal flow kind of a normal. I don't think it's something that we should be so afraid of uh, because it's, um, uh, the business is not just straight line going from point A to point B. Uh, so I, I don't have um, a problem with ups and downs. Uh, I would say that what was, I, I, I felt that human race is more resilient than we expect it to be. <laughs> That's my personal opinion, maybe because I, I am, um, I rely on my own resilience a lot. I went through a lot of things in my life and I discovered that I survived them all and thrived through many of them. So I just stopped worrying at one moment in my life. And this was one of the moments when this resilience was good. Um, of course, recognizing our own ups and downs in that process is important. But I would say that um, what I've learned also and I think it's important uh, that pandemic made people thinking a little bit differently also about the way how we conduct business. Uh, and I mentioned that I feel that uh, thanks to, to, to staying at home and having this problem that we have with pandemics, we started actually thinking more about uh, environmental, social and governance issues like ESG. Uh, I think that ESG is here also getting a lot of attention uh, and, and being now part of this valuation matrix. Uh, and I think it's here to stay. Um, we have seen, um, for example, uh, apart from these virtual deal processes, which I'll tell you a secret, Christian, I'm that old. I think that we've done the electronic data room first time in the early 2000s. Uh, so I just wanted to tell you, you know, like it's, it's not such a novel concept. I mean, mm. we have been doing, of course, you need to meet um, uh, people, but we as advisors, I was then working on a bank sale and we have been uploading documents and this was like wow this, uh, was, yeah. this was this was yeah. this was amazing well, amazing the, let me think back i mean 20 years ago was involved in a transaction um that had a real life data room so this was one of the last yeah. times when really uh a lot of binders and documentations <laughs> were put into a room with a table exactly. where you had to sit down. <laughs> and you were not even allowed to, to, to take a copy of the document. So you would yeah. have a lot a Two big number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you would have a huge teams that going in and then you would have other people monitoring that they do not, you know, copy the thing that they're not allowed to copy. <laughs> I know. When we look at today, I mean, all these, these digital possibilities where you can access from anywhere in the world the data room, where you can also track who looked at what sentence at what point in time and uh, did he or she read it or not, um, technology evolved a lot. One, one thing from last year that I found very interesting is the reaction of the governments and uh, I would be interested in your opinion. Um, I think that the United States, Trump by this time, I think it was almost a year ago, 
um, who defines the first bailout program. If I remember it right, it was roughly two trillion dollars. Then the United, uh, uh, the European Union um, also follows this pattern, and I think they have put together one point eight trillion uh, euros package. And Biden now went for another one point nine, and I think China, Japan, and UK did probably something similar. So. Some friends said that 25% of all you know, uh, of all US dollars that exist today were printed last year. Um, what effect do you see on the availability of capital on the market and on the valuation due to this practice? Is there anything or is there nothing? There has never been more capital in market. I mean, amount of dry powder out there is shockingly high. I'm, I, I'm really, I would say there is no shortage of capital at all. On the contrary, I'm the, one of the examples is um, uh, I mentioned today a couple of times this uh, SPEC, uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Uh, this is, they have raised within from July until February, July 2020 until February 2021, there was more than $100 billion raised in this type of uh, companies. Uh, and then when you in deploy this funding, you usually have a so-called pipe money, which is uh, private equity in um, uh, public companies money, co-investing, which uh, someone made estimate, I read it was in total uh, more than 360 billion. So, I mean, that money, that instrument was not even active last year. And you have all the funds that raised and they're around there. Uh, so I would say that uh, if you look at the numbers, the amount of drive power out there is enormous. I mean, I think, uh, uh, I mean, having worked for many years now also in the blockchain uh, space, I really wonder, you know, what all this capital really means and what it means for the value of that capital in essence. But I was wondering, I mean, the last year or two, what kind of deals did you see? Or is there anything where you can say like, okay, these are really nice examples of M&A deals that can sort of also highlight to our audience where, you know, really good examples of how, how to structure this, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, when I'm looking at, at, um, at our audience, I would say that uh, I also mega deals and the other enormous deals are not something which is, um, I mean, it usually takes a long time uh, to do something like that. And I'm always interested in how creative people are when they start their own businesses, how fast they can grow. And I think that we live in the times of the fast growing companies, uh, like not only fast food, but fast growing companies. And, and I'm actually very excited how people are doing that. So I'm doing uh, looking into uh, and analyzing different uh, of these examples and um, uh I think that people, particularly if you talk about the blockchain and if you talk about the tech companies, um, I would say that people are really surprisingly creative. Uh, one of my favorite examples recently, how a company within two years grew up to enormous valuation is uh, Hopin. Uh, Hopin is a virtual events platform and a video focused software services. Uh, that company was established in June uh, 2019. Uh, and um, uh, basically, they have uh, been valuated um, now end of March uh, 5.6 billion. 
So just giving you the idea how fast they grew. One of the reasons why they managed to grow like that is amazing vision that the founders and the team working on it had. Uh, I'm, I really give them all the kudos. I mean, honestly, they're amazing uh, because they first built up the product. So they went out into the market with the product. So they started, um, um, they, they raised pre-seed, I think in October, 2019. Uh, and then suddenly you can see them going for another and another round as particularly as pandemic started because there was a need for their product. So apart from their amazing strategy, apart from their being very brave founders uh, going out there uh, in, in a very structured way, they also had the circumstances that people needed their product uh, and they didn't want to lose the wave. So they raised another round in February 2020. Uh, and uh, this time, because a UK company, they raised in the US, followed with another round uh, of 40 million in June, uh, another round of 125 million in November. Look at this dynamics. I mean, for me, this is amazing. And then uh, the last one was in March uh, 21, uh, when they raised 400 million. Uh, why I'm mentioning this, what were they doing with that money? Because why would they need it? They just went out there and bought other companies. So they, uh, I think the first one they bought, uh, it was Toppy. Uh, Toppy was conference organizer, uh, particularly bridging the problem of geolocation issues. Um, and then uh, they bought uh, StreamYard. Uh, StreamYard was um, 250 million transaction. This is uh, the company, with already more than 27 million um, uh, turnover. And they are like video creators, uh, but it's not where they stopped. They also bought uh, Streamable, which is a video uh, hosting. And, and the, the Streamable already was operating in 100 countries. Uh, so, and then they bought Jam. Jam uh, uh, was founded in 2019, was the, the youngest one, but this is about video collaboration. So you can see the strategic logic in their acquisition. They know what they're doing. They know their own identity. So they were really going horizontal and vertical uh, uh, integration. So they were looking for the company that would add would add value also in capacity building. All the founders people stayed working with them. Um, uh, so, and suddenly you have Hopin covering, uh, I mean, global uh, global coverage, uh, having a better technology. I mean, for example, Toppy is a company that existed for 10 years before that. Uh, it's amazingly smart what they have done. And, and uh, now it makes sense that they are valued to 5.6 billion. If you look at the capacity that they got with uh, acquisition that they have done in mergers. So I personally think that Hopin is one of really good examples. Of course, we shall see how it will be going. There are always ups and downs, but what I admire most about them I can see their identity. I can see DNA of their company. I can recognize what they're doing through uh, the way how they're doing it, but also through their acquisition. There is another example, which is not maybe that good. <laughs> Let's say that uh, I was always puzzled with this company and this is maybe me not being very good in, in, in understanding that. Uh, that's a Snapchat. Uh, as you know, Snapchat is owned by Snap. Snap is listed now on New York Stock Exchange. I mean, they got 4.9 billion in total funding. Uh, they're 
post-IPO equity, and they're still doing pretty well. So they're not bad company. I'm, I'm not saying that they're bad company at all. On the contrary, but uh, in their growth potential, I mean, from 2011 until today, uh, and they basically started like a photo messaging app, uh, recording videos, um, uh, text, uh, drawings, um, exchange, etc. They made more than 21 acquisitions. They have been an extremely acquisitive company. The out of curiosity, uh, I, I love social media, um, and you are talking about uh, Snapchat. This is this is one app that I really never understood. I tried it. <laughs> I looked at it, uh, but I have no clue what it is about uh, till today. And when I hear from you, they made twenty two acquisitions, and I look at their app, it's pretty much the same. So it, I didn't see a difference. <laughs> are you familiar with their case? What, what is it all about? What is what is the magic of Snapchat? Um, I have to say the Snapchat is uh, I'm, I'm not a big um, uh, social media user. <laughs> I have to admit I, I, I limit myself to 90 minutes per day because I have too much work, spend too much time in in the screen. So I really try to manage my time. We are locked uh, down. I have enough time. So. <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, but I would say that Snapchat, uh, the, the, uh, what I understood about this photo messaging app, when they appeared, they were very popular among super young population. I think that their demographics um, uh, was very focused. So what uh, you're saying, I'm old, I don't understand it because of my age. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they, they have been uh, uh, doing certain things before TikTok, uh, and and this is, but just TikTok is doing it better now. We've also seen that some of the filters that Snapchat invented were easily integrated into their competitors, and this was the, it means that their business model was not resilient enough. Uh, that we, it was easy to strip off uh, some of the features that were attracting users, etc. But in their defense, I would say that um, uh, I, I felt that they had problems with their identity and, and a clear identity. Probably lots of people were coming in with all these acquisitions, bringing a lot of new ideas. It's not always easy to do it. And to their uh, uh, defense, I would say that uh, the last two or three years, I have monitoring their transactions, their acquisitions. Uh, they were going more into uh, AR, uh, VR, voice, uh, AI um, uh, acquisition. So it means that they are preparing for something big. Uh, they're also uh, recently um, uh, got um, this fit analytics. This is a clothing size recommendation uh, app and then um, adding to shopping features of a Snapchat. So the announced acquisition of e-commerce uh, is um, uh, makes sense, which means that Snapchat pivoted from the original photo messaging application with all these filters used by very young population, more towards actually e-commerce shopping with integrated AR, VR capacities and lots of analytics. Uh, so I would say that um, this is this maybe could have been done uh, in more streamlined way, maybe not. I'm not sitting with this, I'm literally this is, analysis from the outside. So, uh, but I would say that uh, I'm glad that they found the way and I'm, I'll be looking um, uh, after them to see how well they are doing this. Uh, e new e-commerce uh, shopping features, uh, how they're expanding uh, towards AR and VR, uh, which is, there's a huge expectation about AR and VR technology in, in uh, fashion industry and e-commerce. Uh, so I will be monitoring if they manage to change their 
brand awareness from being a messaging app for a younger population towards uh, a shopping um, uh, uh, app. To me, it's very interesting what you're saying, because I mean, um, when I look on the digital side, and maybe Astrid will also comment on that, um, and the e-commerce side, I, I see a lot of business models that are very clear. Uh, Shopify, for example, I mean, what I like at exactly. Shopify is uh, they want to uh, open up the possibility for everybody to become an entrepreneur, which I think is a great vision. Um, so it's clear why the valuation is going up and money is flowing to it. But Snapchat, I, I don't, maybe I don't understand it. Maybe they have a value proposition that I just don't see. But a lot of money is also flowing what, from what you're saying to, to models like Snapchat. So this seems to be really a good time for M&A currently on the market. I need to say sort of with Snapchat, I'm, I, I can't really comment 100% on it. But I think in general, what I have seen when in, in tech history, when suddenly, you know, acquisitions come up that, don't seem to make much sense from the outside, then usually there is though a very uh, sort of like determined st strategy within the company that says like, we're going to go into market X and this will help us get there. For example, like with Google, you know, we've all known it as like the search engine. And suddenly there was this um, Google healthcare startup, you know, that we started working on like aging and all that. And everyone's like, why do these guys actually have a biotech company? What, what does it make sense? You know, I think these days it's very clear, you know, what the uh, value proposition is there. But I think that we will see that more and more happening with uh, tech companies and they will actually, uh, they will have sort of an internal strategy that is not very clear to us at the present um, that, that will make these acquisitions work for them. And Astrid, I absolutely agree with um, uh, what you've just said, because I think that's a huge trend ahead of us in 2021 and even 22, uh, because we will be seeing companies strengthening what they do best and get and, uh, releasing non-core assets and maybe streamlining um, uh, pivoting. So we've seen, as I mentioned, Nestle going um, um, away from some acquisitions they did in the past and are now going into this immune um, uh, direction. Uh, so I think like towards the nutrition. So uh, going back to some very, very old Nestle model, and, and I remember Nestle used to be my client like, Zillion years ago, and they were very much into food, nutrition, etc. And and it seems that they're going back to what they do best. Uh, so I think it's it's really good comment that you made, and I'm I would be very happy to see Snapchat finding the identity into something new. Uh, and and I'm I'm you know like cheering for them uh, because I think that um, there is a lot of good technology uh, that they have acquired. <laughs> It's <laughs> the identity crisis. This is a funny yeah. point. Um, talking but about then, talking uh, about mergers, one 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 question I would like to ask you. Um, there are interesting developments. So you mentioned equity swaps. Uh, that not not always money must be involved. So there are also other possibilities. And uh, lately, also in the last year, cryptocurrencies are on the rise. Um, and they are very interesting dynamics. I mean, it was, um, I burned my fingers in 2017 and 18 um, when the market went up and then um, the cryptocurrencies plummeted again. And um, now the prices are surging. I mean, I think they went from $5,000 per Bitcoin up to $60,000 and all other cryptocurrency basically, or many other cryptocurrencies followed the movement. 
now Tesla is accepting uh, Bitcoin for buying Tesla uh, for buying cars. Um, I read today that also PayPal is uh, now accepting cryptocurrencies for purchases via PayPal. Do we? Do you think we will also see some time in the future uh, a press release that says we bought this and that company for hundred thousand bitcoins instead of it. starting it? Really? I have seen it. <laughs> really? Yes, I have seen it. That happened in uh, 2019 in London. Uh, one EIS fund uh, exited. Uh, and accepted accepted bitcoins. I, I completely missed it, Astrid. Astrid, did you see more of the kind of deals? <laughs> um, no, I've seen just very active market in terms of that. Uh, the bigger players are actually acquiring a lot of sort of um, uh, blockchain startups. Um, I've also been involved in one M&A process uh, where I was looking more on the IP due diligence side of things. So we're also was trying to sort of improve their offering by getting in a very well-known um, blockchain company at that time in a sort of intersection of IoT and blockchain. Uh, so that's definitely things that uh, I've seen coming more and more on. I mean, it, it has to be like that in any event. Also today we had this announcement that, you know, Visa will basically put part of their transactions yeah. on the blockchain. So, and I think this will actually an interesting dynamic for the market as a whole um, because there was always the idea like you know all these smaller companies would be there to disrupt uh, current um, settings but actually you can see more no no they're not a disruptor but what a smaller portion of the ecosystem was it we're actually enablers and there will be a greater adoption of this technology and uh, to create hopefully you know to a better uh, wealth and health of everyone around um, but uh, yeah let's see um, before we close it because you're mentioning something um, I really understand um, uh, also Astrid you know that I tried my own fingers it's uh, co-founding um, uh, also the uh, blockchain startups and I believe it's um, um, technology with enormous potential uh, however um, uh, I'm not surprised with consolidation of the market I have been approached by lots of blockchain companies which are now maturing to the space and they understand that they have to team up in various forms and um, uh, I would um, also say one important thing, whenever you're transacting in cryptos, pay your taxes. <laughs> Don't forget, dealing in cryptos does not mean you're not liable to pay taxes. Please do that. Don't be surprised, you know, in a couple of years time, because I know some people who, who a couple of years ago, they had a feeling it's a taxless um, uh, instrument. And basically they were surprised, you know, like when they got the tax bills, which were quite substantial because they had some successes and it was not always easy to offset them uh, with the losses so I'm just saying that pay your taxes <laughs> I, I'm repeating myself but it's quite important and um, also when I'm mentioning paying taxes I, I think that here in Austria we have seen a really nice um, a a crypto tax company um, um, Blockbit that they have merged with a bigger German company and now it's, it's uh, happening I think also that their founders are amazing super young super smart uh, I was 
very happy to see that deal. Uh, for me, that is showing that maturity is coming to uh, that part of the market. Uh, they are now um, able to, uh, in automated ways, service much bigger number of clients, much bigger geography. Um, I think it's amazing, and I'm, I'm just expecting to grow. And not to mention my favorite is Big Panda. <laughs> it is the first uh, unicorn. I mean, I, I have been following them and monitoring and I'm using them uh, for years now. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, and I have to say that you can always recognize uh, the founders who are um, out there um, also exploring all the alternative ways how to grow, to understand that this is not uh, sitting in a garage one day and just in, in, in a week or two weeks time, you're a billionaire uh, having the Lambo to the moon, uh, that this is not really uh, how it should be working, uh, that there is more responsibility coming with success. And I'm always happy to, to see them understanding that and also building up businesses that will be resilient to uh, upcoming uh, shocks. Uh, so this is, the, I just wanted to say when we started mentioning cryptocurrencies and, and the blockchain space, it is consolidating and it will be consolidating more. It's a time. It's very interesting what you mentioned about uh, Lambos and people buying uh, nice stuff. I never met a real successful, per I never met a successful person, let's put it that way that uh, spend a lot of money in, in buying stuff. So all of the successful entrepreneurs I met in my life um, were more in really down to earth, moving their business forward, having a great vision, changing the world. Uh, and same, definitely not driving Lambos. So <laughs> I just see it on TikTok, I mean, this is a... But I can I can say as a fact this I know because I was surprised how this Lambo came uh, and and this was um, in in the hype of uh, cryptocurrencies I mean the, the consensus in New York one year and there were like I don't know how many Lambos parked in uh, on Manhattan and um, uh, a friend of mine uh, and he's one older New Yorker and he was like. They just rented them. <laughs> it's it's they're just rented. They're there for a show. And I was thinking seriously. He said, "I know," <laughs> because he knows someone who works. And they were bringing them uh, for weeks and weeks, you know, um, uh, to New York because they don't have this kind of uh, stock. Uh, and uh, just to have photos, and then uh, this Lambo and and to the moon came um, uh, in this hype. But um, I agree with you. I think that responsible and successful entrepreneurs um, would definitely um, take into consideration. Uh, and I've seen many of them on work. I've seen really some amazing people out there uh, being a good role models, uh, also taking care of um, uh, the money that they get, that they also return to the community. I've seen, um, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of uh, good ideas out there. Um, I remember one of the companies, I mean, it, it's just a platform, but uh, they are a recruitment platform for top non-executives. And they, whenever they find a role, they, pl they uh, plant a tree. Uh, and they have, and, and this kind of things so always move me, you know, when someone thinks about uh, their business, thinks about earth, thinks about future and, and um, uh, leaving impact on many levels. I think it's so much better than uh, a Lambo, but um, maybe that's only me, you know, like it's it's just my personal opinion. 
With a Lamboid list, you have a big um, footprint ecologically. So for <laughs> for 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 a minute, but it doesn't really change much. Um, I think philanthropy is um, a, a must for creating uh, a really successful companies a company that um, has a decent valuation at the end of the day when we when we when we uh, talk about money. Um, we got a question from from the audience. Uh, I was hired for a large family-owned pharmaceutical company that wants me to diversify investment beyond the pharma. They will continue with the PD team for pharma. My challenge is to invest in healthcare companies that we don't have expertise, either governance skill, the idea during the time it is to acquire it. Initially, my strategy is growth equity thesis as a minority, but active into the board. What is your thoughts? Um, actually, I would say that there are uh, here a couple of things. Uh, for me, obviously, they want uh, it's a family-owned business. Uh, so they're using the uh, family-owned business in a certain way, like a, a family office, because obviously they want to invest uh, outside of their, um, as I understood, beyond the pharma, outside of their uh, original thesis. Uh, even if I'm doing that for a company, I would treat that as um, uh, so I would be buying as investment as, as securities and that would be booked as cash. Uh, so that means I would be looking into liquidity of these investments. I would be, uh, particularly if I'm doing something only uh, for, beyond the original business line. Um, so that's something what I would be looking more, uh, not really acquiring company, but it would be looking at it more, as you said, growth equity investment. Let's, let's come to, to this final question that I would like to ask you. Um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs on the market, and um, when I look at the Forbes list, interestingly, the first ten are just men. So I was always wondering uh, why is that? I don't see a reason why no women can be amongst the, the richest people. Um, when I look also on the reality of uh, companies, there are a lot of male founders, and uh, when I look at the statistics that I'm aware of, maybe I just look at the, at the wrong spot. I see a lot of men creating companies and only a few women. women. So my basically, it's a two final questions. So one, um, do I have the right perception of the market or if, do I, am I just blind because I'm a man? And um, the second question then is, um, what, I mean, we have a lot of experience currently, is, uh, and what, is your recommendation to founders, especially female founders, when they want to start uh, companies? Well, I would say that your perception is probably right, but I feel that there is a legacy issue that we forget. Uh, we should not forget that the um, educational system was not equally open only to the generation of our mothers. Uh, so I would say that uh, 50 years ago uh, or in uh, 1950s, uh, it was quite common that girls do not go to the university, that they, even if they would be working girls, they would be going to secretarial positions or the lowest possible. Um, there is a, a funny story I was always uh, reading about the gender gap, and I read uh, one historical study which was actually saying that uh, in post-industrial revolution in England, uh, women 
poor women, of course, were working because there were not enough of the workforce. And they were accepting children as well, not only women. But the women had to work less because they had to go home and make tea, which meant cook a meal. So they actually worked less hours and they were paid less. Interestingly, this uh, legacy issue uh, uh, spilled over uh, even to our times, you know, and, and this is quite, I, I was not aware of this thing. So I was, I'm extremely positive because I think that um, with more um, um, equal education for everyone, uh, that all kind of gender issues, race issues, everything will be disappearing. I think in the 50 years time, we will not be even discussing this topic because we will have 100 years of legacy of actually pe people having access to education and being able to um, uh, build better lives. Uh, so I think this is also something uh, which we are forgetting very often when we are talking about this topic. Um, and what would I suggest? Um, I come from a line of very strong women. <laughs> and I have to say my mother and my grandmother, um, their lives were not easy at all. And they uh, simply taught me to get going. Um, I would say that I have been, um, I had a benefit of working with people who are more open to those who bring added value. Uh, and that marked my career. Um, I was very often the only uh, female person in the boardroom. Um, I started very young corporate career and I progressed extremely fast. And this was also a good historical moment when they were more open uh, for female leadership. Uh, so I would say that my personal feeling is that if you keep going and not really give in to any fears or etc., that you will make it. Let me just say a short story. Uh, this is something that I always kept in mind. I read about Moreno, he's a father of psychodrama, Viennese Moreno, and he moved you know, to US and married Zelda Moreno, who basically carries the legacy. And uh, she was very famous because she wrote all his books on psychodrama, and she basically set up this uh, psychology um, uh, how to say school and um, uh, she worked in a hospital and uh, she was very famous for um, uh, sh she didn't have one arm but because she worked through all the issues people used to work with her two to three years in hospital and they couldn't remember if she did or didn't have an arm uh, and this is a famous example and when I read about it and I was thinking uh, when they ask her, how is it possible? Because it didn't bother me. <laughs> That's what she said. And I kept it all time in my head because it didn't bother me. And whenever I feel something, I feel that it's bothered me. And then I look into that. And if I can release it, it doesn't bother me. I discover that pretty soon other people forget about it if you deliver. I mean, maybe that's not what you really wanted to hear, but I'm just saying you have to keep going Things are changing. Persistency, resilience, that's the key. Astrid, do you have something to add? I mean, you are also a female yeah, entrepreneur in a way. I think it, it, it's a very important point that you raise and also sometimes what is often forgotten when we speak about, you know, why are not more women actually in this space? Because the usual thing that happens is like, yeah, well, they are the ones that normally raise the family, so they don't have the, that much support. And so you need to be lucky to have the partner that sort of also supports in that. But I think you've touched upon a really important point first. Let's not forget that the history of 
women actually being able to educate themselves and even being able to vote is actually still quite recent. And also there is a huge factor of how your family actually perceives you. And that is sort of the same thing that we have seen in, you know, whenever we look at it into male, uh, male's uh, career, that even depending on the setting where you grow up and what of environment you've got around you, that that makes a difference. I mean, for me personally, I re totally, you know, relate to the kind of story that you say, you come from a line of strong women. I mean, my mom was always there to say like, um, don't think about, you know, ha uh, household work, go learn, 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 because this is the future and nothing else. So she was also always there to support and push me through this, which I think was really, really great and um, have great respect of her and everything that she's achieved in her life. And been very grateful to have been able to uh, also uh, sort of grow up in this kind of setting and also very academic setting in the end. So it was just an easy start for me. So I think there is something that we can do to sort of uh, improve on the kind of support systems, already educating uh, children at a very young age. And I think this already starts in kindergarten, to be honest, and how you can go about managing your own life and how you can actually achieve happiness. And also, what does it actually mean for you? You know, what does success really mean for you? And there's, yeah, I can I can't just see it with my own daughter, you know, when I see like how she's playing around and um, the kind of about life that this is definitely something that uh, we should consider more. Dee, Astrid, thank you very much uh, both for your time and uh, for the great insights into the world of merger acquisition corporate finance and uh, what you can do with it and uh, maybe on the topic that we touched a little bit at the end with the with the final question we can make a, an episode on that and discuss a little bit about where society is coming from and uh, where we are heading to i think it would be very interesting in, in my eyes uh, we all who live on this planet live in the most amazing times ever with a level of technological advancement and personal freedom that nobody has ever had on this planet before, uh, men and women alike. <laughs> Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank Bye. you for this amazing call. Thank you. Bye.